My name is Margaret Heffernan. I am a writer. I used to be a CEO. I am a professor at the University of Bath School of Management. And how old am I? And I'm 65. This is 25 for 25, a show where we interview 25 people about what their lives were like at age 25. I'm your host and resident 25-year-old, Panina Beattie. When Margaret Heffernan was 25, she was working an entry-level job at the BBC. She would go on to have many accomplishments. She held executive positions in several top-level media companies, authored six books, and presented five TED Talks, which have been seen by over 12 million people. Meanwhile, as a recent graduate actively scrounging for freelance work, an entry-level job at the BBC sounds like a dream. That said, I know from experience that landing a dream job or internship is only as great as the people you end up working with. Margaret's most recent book, Uncharted, deals with facing the uncertainties of the future. Through her storytelling of prediction mistakes gone wrong in politics, economics, and yes, even pandemics, readers can find applications in their own lives when it comes to predicting the future. Right now, I've gotten to the point of almost zen when it comes to the future. In normal times, I'd say, no, it's healthy to think about your future to an extent, knowing things may not turn out as you'd hoped. But as of this recording, the U.S. elections are in five days, and I'm feeling pretty powerless, not gonna lie. I've deposited my absentee ballot, and now all I can do is wait. God, waiting is terrible. Margaret reminded me that there is no master plan, but it's perfectly normal to feel paralyzed during a time like this. That said, the pandemic hasn't slowed her down. If we stay paralyzed, nothing will happen. So instead, let's at least try to do something. But if you can't make it to a protest or donate money to places like the Philadelphia Bail Fund or your local United Way, just vote. Do it. I know everybody's saying that, so I'm just getting on the bandwagon. Go vote. Links are in the description for both charities and info on how to register to vote and your polling place. And now, Margaret Heffernan on 25. So I want to start backwards because your most recent book um, is pretty relevant to right now. So tell me about what you write about in this new book, Uncharted. So Uncharted is um, it's a book about how to think about the future. And I wrote it really basically because I had lots of conversations with people that persuaded me they really didn't know how to think about the future. They had a lot of about it, but um, and they and, but they didn't really know how to think about it. And they often thought that some people did know the future. And if they just knew those people, everything would be okay. So they were likely to trust, you know, financial forecasters or political pundits or um, apps, you know, meeting apps, for example, obviously, uh, parenting apps, you know, that they were sort of, because they weren't sure how to think about the future, they were very gullible to magicians who pretended that they knew the future were, was in fact, nobody can because it hasn't happened yet. Mm. And, um, 
And I got really fascinated as people asked me sillier and sillier questions, imagining that somehow I knew. And so I started did, you know, doing research into forecasting and and why it fails and you know why personal profiling fails and why DNA is not the key to who you are and all this sort of stuff. And then I thought, okay, so so I could do a demolition job on the forecasting industry. But then if we accept that we don't know the future, what do we do? Are there better questions we can be asking ourselves and better ways of thinking about making the future we want rather than just sitting passively hoping somebody will bring it to us? So that was really the genesis, the genesis of the book. I can totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mother is actually a rabbi, and so obviously she uh, is under the public eye and talking to various different people. And I, you know, as a result, am also talking to a lot of different people. And, and you know, over the years, I get questions like that and other, you know, relatively intrusive questions. And there's a constant discussion in my family that my mom always says, like, well, you know, they're going to ask you about this what's going to be your elevator response? You know, like what's going to be in the back of your pocket in case someone asks you a question that you actually don't really want to talk about or is a little bit intrusive or you don't really know the answer to? What's going to satisfy? It's almost like you're satisfying their ego because they need to know what your future is like so that maybe they feel more solidly grounded in their own lives. I, th I think that's exactly right, that actually it's, it's frequently much more about their anxiety than about yours. But, but it provokes yours, which is why it's unfair. <laughs> right. And, you know, I know that there is so much uncertainty for everyone right now, but I feel like people my age are just especially precariously positioned because there is just so much undecided in our lives and which is natural because we're in our 20s but we don't even get the opportunity right now to make those decisions i mean it's interesting my, my daughter is 20 22 um and she was she was talking to somebody the other day and she said look here's the thing you know when i was three years old there was 9 11 and we were living in the united states you know then in 2008 there was the financial crisis then in 2015 we had the brexit referendum then in 2016 trump got elected now we've got a pandemic and by the way all that time there's been climate change so why on earth do you expect me to think that I know what I'm going to do in the world? I don't even know if there's going to be a world. And they look kind of shell-shocked. But I thought, yeah, you know, this is really a crap inheritance. It's a deeply crappy inheritance. And I think, I mean, I'm quite critical of my own generation in the sense that I think we've taken much of the best that the world had to offer without really thinking about what were we leaving behind for others. And I think the very least we can do is have better understanding and empathy for what it's like if that is the landscape of your life. And um, and I'm just amazed that my daughter and, and your generation and my son aren't angrier with us because I'm very angry with us. I think we've done a really shitty job for our children, you know, with good intentions, but still, nevertheless, 
bad outcomes. And it really behooves us to start thinking about, okay, what are we going to do? Not for ourselves now, but for, for you guys. Because I think, you know, I think, I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend just before I, I came online to talk to you, saying, you know, pers- I see all these companies that are trying to protect senior jobs. And I said, actually, I think we should bring forward the retirement age. I think you should kick out everybody over 60 to make way for young people to make their careers. Because what's happening in the pandemic is that, you know, there are so few jobs and so few interesting jobs is young people are being disproportionately penalized. They didn't do anything to make this happen. It's wrong. And I think we need to retire people early and kind of loosen up the, the queue so that there's more opportunity, better opportunity for young people. Besides which, I think an awful lot of them are smarter than my generation and have a much, much deeper sense of justice than we ever did. And I think it's time for us to get out of the way. I mean, there's a feeling of just such powerlessness right now. Yeah. And part of that is just not being able to make any plans, any contingency plans even, because we don't know what even the near future looks like. We don't know what after Tuesday looks like. And I want to know, how are you dealing with that? Well, I think I generally have plans, but I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that they're going to have to be completely rewritten. So I have a plan, you know, for what I'm doing this coming weekend, for example. Um, and it might be possible. It, it may be that the rules about where we can go and what we can do change and I can't. And I think, okay, well, if the rules change, I'll change. But in the meantime, you know, I know what I'm doing this weekend. I think like lots of people, I'm not, I'm trying quite hard not to make super long range plans. Um, well, I put it differently. I'll make plans for the short term, very short, you know, like a week at a time. And I'll make very long range plans in terms of what book do I want to write next? So that's like years, right? (laughs) But in between, I just don't bother because I think it's futile at the moment. I think it's just futile. And also I have, you know, I guess I would say I've made not so much plans as I've thought a lot about right, this is going to be a long haul. We don't know how it's going to play out. So what are the things that you can do that are safe, that make you feel life is worth living and they're energizing and they make you feel okay? Because what you have to do is do as many of those as you can and do at least one one of them every day. So I guess what you could say is I'm sort of planning for stamina because... I can't think, I mean, that's the one thing I know we all need to have in this. When I wrote Willful Blindness, which was really about uh, how things go badly wrong for individuals and organizations, not because of information they didn't have, but information that's freely available that they ignored, um, I came to the conclusion that willful blindness is in all of us and in all institutions. So it wasn't that you could eradicate it. The better question to ask was, what are the conditions in which willful blindness flourishes? And one of the conditions, I thought, was a deeply competitive environment. 
that if I'm in a really competitive situation, I am so focused on the goal that I can't see what I'm missing. I can't see um, the other opportunities I might be ignoring. I can't see the damage I'm doing possibly to me and to others. And that the more competitive an organization was, and the more it kind of believed in selfishness, the less you understood the world, basically. And you know, and what I found was that there's this interesting thing where the more competitive education became, the more you found people cheating, plagiarizing, resorting to you know drugs like Adderall and Ativan. Um, the more competitive sport had become, the more money there was attached to it, the more you found people cheating and drug taking. And actually the same thing was in business, you know, that the more competitive companies became, the more they started flouting regulations and so on and so forth. And I just was kind of amazed to see this correlation that the more competitive a place became or a person became, the more destructive and blind to their destruction they became. So it was, you know, it was a really fascinating, I thought, fascinating piece of research. And I just, you know, and, and I just, you know, some of the stuff I found, you know, some of the, it was incredible, like Olympic athletes, you know, who always worshipped, and I admire their discipline, but, you know, they're so focused on the goal, and bear in mind these days, nothing counts except a gold medal. They have no childhood, and they quite often have no adulthood, because by the time they're past their physical prime, They've missed the chance for real friends. They've missed the chance for real education. And they have a sort of mindset, you'll say themselves, where if they can't measure their achievement every day, they're completely lost. So it was fascinating. It was really, really a fascinating piece of work. And you you wrote about yeah. Enron as well. Well, I wrote about, I wrote two plays for the BBC about Enron. I've always had a kind of unhealthy fascination with what I think of as business car crashes. And, um, and then Ken Lay died. And I remember reading, he said he was the chairman of Enron. I remember reading a lot of obituaries about him thinking, wow, this is a very very unusual person, very humble background, very religious. I thought, how on earth did he end up running Enron? Um, so I got really interested in him. And then he and, uh, and, and then I got hold of the transcript of the trial where he and the CEO, Jeff Skilling, were tried. And towards the end of that trial, the judge, Simeon Lake, instructing the jury told them about this legal concept of willful blindness. It says, if there are things you could know and should know and somehow manage not to know, then the law deems that you're responsible because you had an opportunity for knowledge that you shirked. And I remember reading that thinking, whoa, this is a very big idea. And I'd run several companies and I knew for sure there were things that I could have known and should have known and didn't know. Also, I grew up um, in the Netherlands, and my father did a lot of work in Germany, and I'd always been very puzzled by how was it that you know these good German people had managed to do such terrible things during the war. And at the same time, I was very alert to the fact that 
you know, the, the sort of mammoth child abuse scandal in the Catholic Church in Ireland. And I just suddenly thought, oh, my God, this willful blindness stuff, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. How does it work? How does this happen? And so that's really what, what inspired the book. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's like a lot of research. When you start looking for something, you just start finding it all over the place. And that was definitely the case with willful blindness, and, and still is, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I feel, you know, and I am a kind of insane optimist, <laughs> <I> warn you. <laughs> um, the thing I feel has been a real kind of drag on thinking, if you like, is I think we've grown up in a kind of management culture where there's a problem, there's a solution, there's a problem, there's a solution. And, um, and we're very poor at thinking there's a problem. I don't know what the answer is, but I better do something. I think we look for a master plan before we can kind of act. And I think that becomes very paralyzing. And one of the reasons I wrote about um, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in the United States was partly a belief that we had there, there was a whole generation of people who didn't know this story, probably more than one generation that doesn't know the story. Um, and that even people who knew the story hadn't really understood the story. And what happened in the in with the AIDS epidemic was that you know you have a disease that it takes about nearly two years to figure out what it is. And then, you know, the gay community can't quite decide how to respond to it. So some want to do a lot, some want to hide it. Um, they can't agree, is this a lifestyle issue or a political issue or a medical issue or a scientific issue or what kind of issue is it? Everybody is, you know, it's very ununified, um, although everybody's scared. It's the only unifying fact. Everybody's scared. Um, the government can't decide, is it, should it do something? Um, because a lot of people think it's a punishment from, from God for homosexuality, in which case, just let people die. Other people think, well, no, 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 that you really can't, you can't do things that way. This is a disease and we have to tackle it. You have a, a federal government voting funds to try to uh, accelerate medical research, but the money's never paid. Um, you know, you have scientists who are fighting each other for recognition of who first defined what it was. You have pharmaceutical companies who can't decide, well, should we do the research? Because, well, does this community have much money? Because if they don't have much money, we'll never get our research dollars back. I mean, it's just, excuse my French, an absolute clusterfuck. And, um, and eventually what happens is a whole bunch of people say, well, let's just start. Let's just start doing something. You know, the one thing we know is if we hide this, nothing will happen. So you have a lot of people who make, you know, of course, all these fantastic, you know, unforgettable demonstrations, which are really designed to shame institutions into action. Right. You have other groups that are really, really, really working on the research and trying to understand what are the treatments for it. You have others who are really, really working with the pharma industry to say, please, come on, you've got to be involved in this and you have to involve us in it, which was never the case before. But at no point in this epic 
and it is an epic, at no point is there a master plan. And the way that AIDS went from being a lethal diagnosis to a treatable disease is because everybody tried everything. And a vast amount of it failed. And some of it's silly, right? Like banana enemas and stuff like that. But the point is, if if they there was a point in the early 90s where there was someone in America dying of AIDS every minute. If if it wasn't possible to just sit there and wait for a master plan. And I think that one of the things that's really messed us up with regard to climate change is waiting for somebody to come and say, okay. Margaret, this is what you've got to do, right? And this is what everybody else has to do. And I think the good news is lots of people haven't waited. There are hundreds of companies around the world that have been inventing new technologies and all sorts of things. So there's a lot more technology addressing this problem than almost anybody knows about. Um, I do believe now, as a result of looking at a lot of this stuff, I do believe this is a soluble problem. The problem, it is not a technical problem anymore. It is a political problem. Um, but, you know, in a way, if we didn't have the technical solutions, politics wouldn't matter, right? But it, you know, but now it is really full bore a political problem. And one of the many fabulous activists that I interviewed about the AIDS crisis, you know, they all drew the analogy with climate change. They said, you know, what really, really made the difference is expertise and shame. Shaming those who did nothing and using expertise to get alongside people who could be our allies. And I think that's kind of where we are right now, you know, using the expertise to really see how we implement and scale a lot of these solutions and using shame to force political activity. Yeah, and it's so interesting because so many of your anecdotes in the book are oriented towards business and health and larger issues, but it can be so localized and applicable to your own life if you're able to make that, you know, global connection with uh, your personal circumstance. Well, it's really funny because the book has been nominated for two best business book prizes, uh, neither of which has won. <laughs> my, husband, my husband said the other day, do you think people have noticed that it's actually not a business book? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think they yeah. probably have. <laughs> Because it isn't. It absolutely isn't. It's a book about life and business is part of life. Well, and I'm sure part of that is because you've worked in the business world as a CEO and in many leadership positions. Well, so, um, you know, eventually I, I uh, got out of my crappy job at the BBC and started making radio programs. And then I started making uh, television programs. And then I ran my first business, which was representing film and television producers in their negotiations with broadcasters. And then uh, we moved to Boston. It's my husband, who's an immunologist, uh, got a position at Harvard. So I found myself in Boston, knowing nobody, having sold my business um, with a three-month-old baby. 
So, you know, having a three month, having your first baby with no support structure is not something I'd recommend to anybody. Just in case they want advice about how to make life, you know, easy for yourself, don't do what I did. Um, but eventually I got my act together and I started working in tech companies. And it was at a moment in the tech industry where it was sort of just the beginning of the idea that tech could also have some relationship. And so to cut a long story short, I ended up running tech companies for venture capitalists and they were various kind of forms of media technology. Um, and I had a fantastic time doing it. And many people think, well, how do you get from, how do you get from kind of radio and television and writing and producing programs to running tech companies? But I just kind of took the view that all of those things are about bringing together really creative people and trying to create an environment in which they can do really great work together. And whether it's radio or television or you know, building software, it seemed to me it was all pretty much the same. So I couldn't and still can't uh, write a single line of code. But I like to think that I do know, or at least did know, <laughs> how to bring some some creative people together and and find ways to do amazing things together. Right, and it seems like the goal is to find a way to incorporate creativity into your work. And you are a very creative person. Um, what did that creativity look like when you were 25? Well, I think when I was 25, it was a sort of instinct, but without any tools. Um, so I'd have ideas, but not really understand how to achieve them. And I think, you know, the great thing about kind of learning all about radio, learning how to edit and stuff like that, is I learned how to go from an idea to something. And I learned a lot about form and I learned a lot about structure and I learned a lot about working with people and directing actors and musicians and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think I had lots of ideas when I was 25, but not much practical understanding of how to give those ideas form in some reality um but yeah i mean i think i've always been pretty creative i was always the person who could always you know on a rainy day yeah. think of something to do and it was never watching television yeah i'm this kind of the same way and um you know whenever i talk to my friends about like some some plan or scheme that i want to hatch and i always kind of preface it with like I say, uh, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm an ideas gal. We'll see if it really works out. But I think the biggest part of those ideas, to me at least, is it's about finding your team. So I would agree with that. I mean, and it's, it's finding the people that you like working with, finding the people that trust you enough, they can say, actually, no, that's a terrible idea, right. but this might work. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I've written a lot about collaboration. I think a lot of collaboration is about um, being able to have what I think of as a creative argument with somebody. You know, there was tiptoe around saying, actually, you know, but you know, this is, that's a terrible idea, but I think what you're getting out is X. So have you thought about that? 
um, you know, rather than saying, oh, yeah, it's a really good idea. And, you know, maybe, you know, all that kind of nonsense. Um, But I I mean, it's funny because my family, every now and then, probably monotonously, I'll say, oh, I've had an idea. And everybody in the family, (laughs) oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I wonder what kind of skills do you have to manage such an amazing full plate? I have a lot of energy, thank God. Um, but still, it was a lot. It was a lot. And I was still in the, my book had just come out in the UK, so I was still doing full-on promotion for that. So it was it was mayhem. But but you know, what are you gonna do? The whole country's in a crisis. You're gonna just sit back and watch Netflix. I mean, seriously? Yeah, so. So yeah, you know, creativity, as you probably know from your own experience. Yeah, I, uh, I for one, definitely know what you mean by that. I mean, uh, the other day I was actually talking to a friend and um, I was saying, well, I don't know, I, I'm afraid that my plate is going to be too full. And she was like, Panina, for as long as I've known you, I've heard that statement from you. Oh, I'm so worried that my plate is going to be too full. But you never do anything about it. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's accurate so that's interesting so if you think you're taking on too much do you slow down um yeah i mean it's hard uh i guess something that i'm learning um and growing to be better at is uh setting more boundaries um and knowing that you know if i'm gonna take on a lot that I need to have a bedtime and I need to have breaks and I need to be very regimented about like when I'm going to work and that's fine and when I'm going to be able to relax because otherwise it's only going to be work and I'm going to be totally burnt out. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's tricky, but um, I mean, I guess I've always, I mean, I think you're right. It's a very good insight about boundaries. And I think if you do too much, the thing I've learned the hard way is not that you can't do them all because you find a way, but they're not quite good enough. And I think later in life, I've come to feel I would rather do less better than just more. And I don't regret, you know, years where I was just doing huge amounts but I definitely have reached a point where I would I would much rather do less better. Definitely. Yeah. So what would 25-year-old Margaret think of your life right now? I think I would think, wow, really? Seriously? How did that happen? Because there was never a plan. Um, I think I'd be glad, very glad I'd become a writer. I think the business stuff would completely amaze me. And I think, why did you do that? Um, but yeah, I think I'd just be surprised and probably relieved <laughs> that it hadn't all been a total disaster. <laughs> and what would you say to her? Well, I think I would say something I really believe, which is, you know, how did I get here? I got here by doing lots of experiments. And I'm a big believer in experiments. I just tried stuff. You know, I tried working in one kind of place, didn't like it, tried somewhere else, did like it, stayed, got to a point where I thought, right, that's enough of that. Let's try something else. Um, I, I mean, I think 
experiments are how we learn almost mm. everything, to be honest. I think decisions are experiments. It's a hypothesis. If I do this, that will happen. Um, and I'm a much greater believer in experiments than in planning, because I think if you don't know the future, experiments are how you find out what's going on in you and in the world. Um, so, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, everybody I know, if I, you know, certainly all the people I know who are much younger than I am, not just my kids, but their friends and my sister's kids who are quite a lot older than mine. You know, one of them started in PR and now she's a family lawyer. One of them started wanting to be a lawyer and now he works for a sports marketing company. One of them started out working in um, art history and now she's a labor negotiator for um, people in the developing world who need to get properly paid. Uh, one of their best friends wanted her whole life to be a doctor and then after she qualified realized she really didn't like patients. So, you know, so I think life is about discovering our capabilities and what we enjoy doing. Uh, and I don't think that's subject to a plan. And I think the main reason it isn't subject to a plan is you don't know who you are until you try stuff. And also you change and you change drastically. Uh, and I was reading a paper in some medical journal recently saying that really the person you are at 70 is a completely different person physically and mentally and psychologically than the person you are at you know, 21. And I think that's true. And I think it's why all of these terrible gizmos, you know, their psychological profiles, the Myers-Briggs, the Couch Strengths Finder, all of the apps that purport to tell you who you are. The fundamental flaw underlying all of them is they assume that who you are is fixed. And it mm. so is not. And I think, you know, the single greatest breakthrough in my life, scientific breakthrough, has been the discovery of neuroplasticity and the degree to which our brains change until the very, very, very last moment of life. And that means who we are and what we're capable of is constantly changing. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. It means you don't have to know everything about yourself. You cannot know everything about yourself. At you know, 5, 25, 55, 65, you are evolving. And the energy and creativity and judgment you bring to that really defines how rich your life will be. But there is no profile of the perfect life for you. It's up for you to invent it and discover it. To the next generation, Merry Christmas, 